Well, good morning, everybody. Today we're going to be finishing our mini-series through 1 John with 1 John 5. You can find that on page 1023 in the Blue Pew Bible that's under your chair or it's under the chair in front of you. I would encourage you to have a physical copy of the Bible with you to follow along with us as we read the Scriptures and discuss them together. As you turn there, 1023, I would like to remind you of the purpose of John's letter, which is found here in chapter 5, verse 13. The purpose of John's first letter is for those who believe in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, to know that they have eternal life. I'd like to begin by reminding us of a memory that we more or less share together. Do you remember visiting that one family member's house when you were growing up that had a bookshelf? And on the bottom of that bookshelf was this really thick, dust-covered, hardback book called a dictionary. Well, if you're anything like me, you probably only use that on special occasion when you're trying to find the meaning to weird words like onomatopoeia or taxes. Well, nowadays, they have this same thick book in digital format online, and you guessed it. It's called dictionary.com. Well, dictionary.com not only gives you definitions to weird words, but it also provides definitions for weird phrases. For example, the phrase, ball is life. No one knows exactly where this phrase came from. It actually started gaining popularity for me in middle school into high school. But everybody was saying it, so it's important to know what it means. Well, dictionary.com gives us a nice summary, and this is what it says. People who say ball is life are extremely devoted to the sport of basketball. Ball is life doesn't just signify being a fan of the game. It represents someone who loves and lives for the game plays as much as they can, thinks about it when they can't play, and finds meaning in their life through basketball. Now, just when you thought it couldn't get any better than that, the phrase ball is life started to be used by other ballers, like footballers, footballers, volleyballers, and basically any sport with a ball. Then it began to mean sports in general. Then people started changing the first word to match whatever it was that they were devoted to. Ball is life, fall is life, winter is life, coffee, music, adventure is life, tofu is life, kung fu is life. Now, this might all make sense to you, or maybe it sounds ridiculous, and I can assure you it can be both. But the bottom line is this. We as human beings are so prone to devote ourselves to things with the expectation that these things will give us purpose or meaning in our life. Maybe we even look to these things to give us life. If I told you to fill in the blank, blank is life. It doesn't have to be ball. In your life, what would the blank be? What would you write? But it should fit our definition. So let's remember the definition, okay? You love for it, or you love it, you live for it. All of your time is devoted to it. You think about it. When you're away from it, you find meaning in your life in this thing. Well, friend, if the blank is anything other than the life himself, the Lord Jesus, then that is called idolatry. 
Let's revisit the definition so we can see this more clearly. People who say blank is life, let's fill in the blank, are extremely devoted to their idol. Idol is life doesn't just signify being a fan of the idol. It represents someone who loves and lives for their idol. Spend as much time with their idol as they can. Think about their idol when they don't have their idol and find meaning in their life through their idol. Though idols is only mentioned one time in the entire letter of 1 John, in 1 John 5, verse 21, the apostle actually has much to say to us this morning about the dangers of idolatry and yet another reminder where true life can really be found. Which brings us to chapter 5. So I would encourage you to follow along in your Bible as I read. 1 John 5. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey His commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments. And His commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? This is He who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood. And these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he has born concerning his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe in God has made him a liar because he's not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his son. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life and this life is in his son. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son of God does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. We know that everyone has been, who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true and we are in Him who is true in His Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, 
Keep yourselves from idols. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I would like to frame our time in the text this morning with three exhortations that I see us given by the apostle. Two longer exhortations that create the foundation for the last one. Okay, The first two are this. Keep your faith. Keep your brother. And the third, keep yourselves from idols. Keep your faith. Keep your brother. Keep yourselves from idols. So first, church, keep your faith. The focal point of the first 13 verses of our text, I would argue, culminate here in verse 4. Look with me. They culminate here in these words, our faith. It is our faith that is the victory that has overcome the world. John says it. And he doesn't want the church to miss this, okay? So, so we can see it. I want to say this. In the Greek, the word for faith is pistis. He's used it a few times already in the verb, and we've heard that. Believe, believing, when we've read it. That's in chapter 3 also and in chapter 4. In chapter 5, here, he uses it seven times in the whole chapter. Six times, he says it in the verb, believe, believing. But here in verse 4, he uses it as a noun, faith. Our English Bibles actually show us this. Look down there at verse 4. It says, uh, the ESV includes a long dash. You see that dash? It sets the word apart as it was intended to add emphasis, to draw our attention to that word. So we can see it as we read, but think about this. At the time the apostle wrote this letter, when they would send these letters to the churches, they didn't have copy machines to make mass productions of John's latest letters to send to all the churches. They had to be read orally to the church. So knowing this, John wanted our faith to stand out. So he writes it in such a way that it would be said in such a way that the church would have to perk the ear and listen more intently about this faith because it is this faith that has overcome the world. It's this faith that we ought to keep. Keep your faith. What do I mean by keep? Well, keep like one keeps on a path. You need to know where your destination is, how to get there. Keep on it so that you can walk the right path. And if you need to, course correct if you're straying from it. Keep your faith like one keeps a garden, cultivating it, maintaining it. Surely no one here would plant a garden and expect it to thrive if they left it alone. It must be kept. We should not treat our faith in Christ as a one and done ordeal, as if praying a prayer is sufficient and can, we can proceed to forget about Jesus and continue living our life the way that we lived it before. You must keep your faith. So let's explore how the apostle would have us keep our faith. Starting with verse one. Keep your faith by believing in the one true Christ. Keep your faith by believing in the one true Christ. Forsake the antichrists and their messages, the messages of life that you hear all around you in the world that promise you what they cannot deliver and remember the one true Christ. He says everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ, not a Christ. This verse serves us as another one of John's summary phrases. We've seen this before. He expects us to recall what he's already said up to this point. So let's try to do just that. In our time today, he says in 5.1, everyone, 
In the onset, we remember chapter 2 and chapter 4, that Jesus himself is the propitiation for our sins and the sins of the world. Jesus is the Savior of the world. Now, we remember that that doesn't mean Savior of the world inclusively, meaning everyone. That's universalism. This idea that everyone goes to heaven, which is not what the scriptures teach, and that's not what John is saying in this letter. No, rather, he means Jesus is the Savior of the world exclusively, meaning Jesus is the only Savior. He alone can pay the penalty for our sins. He alone can pay for the rejection, our rejection of God as authority in our lives and disobedience to his law because Christ alone lived a righteous life of obedience to God without sin and died in our place on the cross where God the Father poured all of his wrath out on the Son in our place. This wrath was destined for those who do not believe. Salvation is exclusively through Jesus for everyone. That means anyone on this planet can repent of their sin and put their faith and trust in the Lord Jesus as their Savior. Anyone. According to the apostle, you must believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the only sufficient Savior, meaning nothing else and no one else in this world can save you from the wrath of God that we have earned because of our sin against the holy God. And friend, nothing and no one else also includes you. Maybe you're here this morning and you think getting to heaven or having eternal life is a matter of being morally good, doing good. If I'm just good enough, if I'm just a good enough person, if I'm at least morally good, more often than I'm immoral, then I will go to heaven. Friend, this is the opposite of what the scriptures teach us. Romans 3.23 says, All have sinned, no one is good, no, not one. If no one's good, that means our good works cannot save us. And just to be clear, neither can your good works save someone else or others' good works save you. You and they, we as sinful human beings, could never be good enough to stand before our righteous God by our own merit. But Jesus is. Jesus is good enough. He's righteous. And salvation is a free gift. What does that mean? It means you don't have to work for it. You don't have to earn it. It's a free gift, and it's given for free. How do we get it? By faith. It is our faith. And when by faith, when you grasp a hold of the eternal life himself, you are made a child of God. And you have all the rights that a child of God has. John's pointed this out earlier in the letter. Here he says, everyone who believes has been born of God. It is by faith we're made children of God, not because we go to some church or because we have Christian family members or because we're good people. It is by faith in Christ. If you do not know this Christ, the Christ, please come talk to me, talk to anyone you've seen up here this morning. We would love to talk to you about what it looks like to believe in Christ and follow him as your Lord. When we believe 
him. When we have faith in him, we are made children of God. We're saved by God into God's family, and God has promised to cleanse us from all of our sin, all of our unrighteousness, and make us look more like Jesus, which happens when we obey. At the end of verses 1 through 3, we see we keep our faith by living a life of obedience to God. You don't obey to earn salvation. You obey because God's already saved you. When God saves us, he changes us from the inside. The Apostle Paul refers to this in Ephesians 2. He says, once being dead, but now being made alive. And when God makes us alive, he gives us a new heart with new desires. We love God now, and because we love him genuinely, we want to obey him rather than disobey, which we see in verse 3. He says his commandments are not burdensome, meaning they have now become a delight to us whereas before they were burdening because we realized we couldn't do it. To obey God is possible because now we actually love him and we want to live for him. Does your obedience to the commandments of God reveal a love for God or a lack of love for God? Before God made us a part of his family, all of our desires were inward bent to our own selfish sinfulness. What we wanted and not what God wanted. But when God saves us, he frees us from our slavery because we were enslaved. He frees us from our slavery to our bondage to our sin and gives us a new heart with new desires. And now we are enslaved to Lord Jesus Christ to obey him from our hearts by the power of his spirit working in us. Maybe you believe in Christ but you feel enslaved to some kind of sin in your life. Obeying God feels burdensome to you. It feels impossible to overcome whatever this sin is. Well, let the word of God encourage you this morning that you have been set free from slavery and bondage to your sin, whatever it's sin Whatever the sin is that you're struggling with, that you're dealing with, you feel like you can't get out of, you have been set free from the bondage to that sin and you are now in Christ. That means you don't have to sin because you can obey. His commandments are not burdensome to the redeemed. But maybe you're here this morning and you don't have a relationship with God. You're searching, but you don't know him, and you see those kinds of struggles in your life, these kinds of things we would call sins, but you can't seem to break those things. Well, I would encourage you that, yes, this is an encouragement, that you can't break with your sin. And you can't do it by your own strength. And this is an encouraging word for you, because if you ask the Lord, the Lord Jesus will help you. And Jesus will help you turn away from your sins. Lord, help me turn away from them. Help me to overcome them. Help me to trust you. And God is faithful and he is just. And if you trust him, you will see your desires begin to change. It's not only that you will see more victory against whatever that sin is, but that you won't even desire it because you desire to serve Jesus more. Because you'll love God and you'll love those who have been born of him to the point where you won't want to sin that way again. You just won't want to because you want to love Jesus and follow him. 
But at the core of it all, answering the question of how we keep our faith is this. We keep our faith by resting in the object of our faith, Jesus, the Son of God. It's right there in verse 4 and 5. Verse 4, it is our faith that has overcome the world. Verse 5, who is it that overcomes the world? Except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. John's emphasis in verse 4 is on our faith, which reveals to us that it isn't ultimately our acts of believing or obeying that overcome the world. It's the object of our faith. The faith John wants us to see is a faith that is immovable. Not because of how strong your faith is or how weak you feel like your faith is, but because the object of our faith, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, He is a solid rock, the cornerstone of our salvation. Our faith in Him has overcome the world. Brother, sister, if you feel weak, if you feel tossed about by the difficulties of life, I hope it encourages you that the Lord has not moved one time. He's not moved once. He's not been surprised. Neither has he left you to face what you're facing alone. The Lord is the rock on which we stand. And to point out the reality of this foundation for the believer, John gives us one final argument to solidify the whole thing, our whole hope in God. Remember, he's writing against these antichrists that we've already seen. They've left, they've left the church and they've spread false messages about who Jesus is and what he's done. So he gives one final argument as to why the faith, it's the faith in this Jesus and only this Jesus that can overcome the world. So look with me here at verses 6 through 12. Verse 6. The one who came by water and the blood. What does that mean? John emphasizes not by water only. That gives us a clue. Because the Antichrist, remember, they did not believe that Jesus was the Christ. They believed they were separate. Jesus Christ. They believed that the spirit of the Christ rested on Jesus at his baptism, the water. And then he left, whatever this Christ was, he left Jesus at his crucifixion, the blood. But John reminds the church, Jesus is the Christ. They aren't different. They are the same person. The antichrists were fine with the water. You may know some people who are fine with Jesus being a man. They're fine with him being smart and saying cool things. But they were not okay with the blood that Jesus himself is the Christ. The sacrificial lamb who takes away the sins of the world. It's by this Messiah's wounds that you and I can be healed. So John emphasizes it, but water and blood. And this testimony is true because here's the kicker. God himself bears this testimony for his own son. By water. Think back to Jesus' baptism. Remember, God's voice thundered from the heavens. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And the Holy Spirit, remember, descended on him like a dove, confirming that testimony. God's word is true. 
by blood. Think about Jesus' crucifixion, when he bled, when he died, when he was buried, but God raised him from the dead. There's no other person in history who's ever claimed to be God or claimed to be divine or offered a way for you to get saved or go to heaven that has died, that has also risen from the dead. Nobody except one, Jesus. Only one confirming his testimony yet again. And then lastly, by the Spirit. Through the Spirit's continued testimony of the truth, these three witnesses agree. This was important for the Old Testament, for the New Testament. A couple examples real quick. Deuteronomy 17, 6, 2 Corinthians 13, 1. Any charge put against somebody had to be weighed or established by two to three witnesses. It was done this way because it needed to be credible. It needed to have it needed to be credible, if not identical. It needed to be an identical witness or testimony to be sure that something was true, which is what we have here. Friend, there's no clearer evidence that God could give us, not only of his existence, but his truthfulness and his compassion and his mercy on the human race than through the life, the death, and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, confirmed then and confirmed now and continued to be confirmed through the ministry of God's Spirit today. Listen to the Spirit's message. Whoever has the Son has life. Christian, keep your faith. Keep your faith by resting in the life himself. Jesus is life. Verse 13, you can know you have eternal life because you have Jesus. Eternal life is not some unending euphoric existence that you can imagine in your mind. Eternal life is a person, Jesus. Do you know him? Do you have him? God has revealed himself to you and me and the rest of the world through his son, Jesus. It's our pistis, our faith in him that overcomes the world because the Lord Jesus himself in John 16, says this, take heart, saint, I've overcome the world. Take hold of Christ by faith. Nourish, cultivate your faith in him. Keep your faith and take heart because Jesus, the object of our faith, has overcome the world. Which leads us to the second exhortation. And it is inseparable from this. Keep your brother. You can see this in verses 14 through 19. Keep your brother. We're to keep our brothers and sisters in the faith. Brothers and sisters, because the word can mean both, brothers and sisters. That is, take responsibility of their welfare, to care for them, to protect them, to keep them like you would keep a precious jewel, safe and secure out of harm's way. Keep them like you would keep a small child from running into the road, guarding them from what is about to cause harm. Make a barrier between you and the danger and them. Keep your brother. Well, what narrative in the scriptures, in the Old Testament, does that bring to mind? Keep your brother. Here's a hint. Look at me at 1 John 3, verses 11 and 12. <clears throat> 1 John 3, 11 and 12. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, 
who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Genesis 4, Cain and Abel. Right after Cain murdered Abel, God asks him, where is Abel your brother? And what does Cain say? I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? God was not ignorant of Cain's actions. God is omniscient, meaning he knows all things. And in his providence, this event happened in accordance with his will. So why ask Cain? Again, in the providence of God, I believe it was to reveal something fundamental about our relationships with one another. First, in Genesis 4, now threaded throughout all of 1 John, it's in full view. God's command and intention has always been for the people of God to keep one another. Beginning with his people Israel, and now in Christ, it continues with his church. The implied answer to the question, am I my brother's keeper, has always been, yes, you are your brother's keeper. So in that case, it would be good for us to know who our brothers are. Judging by all the one another commands we see in 1 John and in the New Testament and the inseparable nature of both loving God and loving one another that we saw in, chapter, in verse 2, loving God and one another, that we've seen all throughout the letter, we must define who is our brother so we can carry out these commands to love them and keep them. Now, I must admit, my brief explanation here is not exhaustive, but it is important and it gets us where we need to be. So, if we don't understand who, we can't understand how in verses 14 through 17. And if we don't understand how, it won't land on our hearts the way that it should. So I would submit to you that our brothers and sisters here in view, that you are called to keep by God, are none other than the brothers and sisters you have covenanted with here as Redeemer Baptist Church. If you're visiting, to be clear, you are to keep your brothers and sisters that you've covenanted with in your local church. I say local church because church can be seen in the New Testament in two ways. The universal church, that's all Christians everywhere in all of time, and the local church, a gathering of believers in the same place at the same time, around the same gospel. It's here in this context of the local church that we're commanded by God to live out these one another commands. Now, the question that follows, who makes up the Redeemer gathering? Can anyone who comes on a Sunday claim to be a part or a member of the Redeemer body? And I would answer, no. And I think you guys would agree because just because we go somewhere and gather with some people doesn't mean we're immediately a part of that group. That doesn't make us a part of the church just because we visited once. So what does make us a part of the church? Well, my non-exhaustive answer is the ordinances that Christ gave his church to signify that these are his people. Baptism and the Lord's Supper. He gave us these ordinances to visibly express our commitment to him and to his people, his body of which he is the head. Again, I would submit to you that Christ gave the ordinances to the local church and therefore it's the local church that has the authority to baptize and the authority to administer the Lord's Supper. But what does this have to do with knowing who is or isn't a part of the church? Well, remember, the church is a gathering of believers in Christ, right? Well, how do you know if someone is a believer in Christ? 
Jesus says it's by their fruit. And what's the first fruit of faith in Christ? Baptism. I've given up my life, everything I lived for before, all the idols that I lived for, and I have put fully and finally my faith in the Lord Jesus to sustain me and give me life. In Acts 2, we see this. The apostle says, repent and be baptized, Apostle Peter. Baptism thus is the first sign of obedience for a believer in Christ. When someone puts their faith in Christ, then they should be baptized. The church should administer baptism to this individual upon a credible profession of faith, meaning they they hear the gospel from them. They see it in their life. They collectively agree as a whole. When we vote to bring people in, we collectively agree as a whole. Yes, this one is committed to Christ. This one is a member of God's family. And then if they hadn't already been, we immerse them in water, representing their death to sin, and rise them up, representing their resurrection life in Christ. This is a once-for-all physical sign of a spiritual reality, that a person has been united to Christ as the head and the church as his body. Universal, yes, but visibly seen in a commitment now to the local church. And then the supper. The regular taking of the supper thus serves as an ongoing sign, pointing us all back to our baptisms where we were fully committed to Christ. We remember the gospel. We believe the gospel. Jesus saved us from our sin, and we're planting our stake in the ground, and we're confessing it to the world. And the supper visibly expresses our commitment to him and our commitment to his church, this body. The supper is meant to draw us closer together, to unify unify us through our common faith in the gospel that saved every one of us. The gospel we remember in the one body broken for us and the one blood poured out for us. That's not exhaustive, but it does get us to the point where we can say this. The church is made up of baptized believers who have committed to one another and their commitment to the church is visible when they take the supper together. Now, a few quick questions before we look at the ways John tells us to keep one another in the local church. Three things. First, if you believe in Christ, but you've not been baptized, why not? It's a command of the Lord. If you believe in the gospel, the next first step is to proclaim to the world your commitment to Christ and his people through baptism. Second thing, if you are a baptized believer, but you're not committed to a local church, why not? We call that commitment here membership. Not everybody calls it that. We call it membership because we say we're members of the body, membership. If you aren't committed to a local church in some kind of way like that, you cannot obey the Lord's commands through the apostle here to keep your brothers and sisters. So I would encourage you, if you don't have a church to commit to, talk to one of our pastors. We would love to talk to you about either committing with us or finding a church that you can commit to so that you can live out these commands commanded to us by the apostles from the Lord. Third thing, finally, if you take the supper here with us, do you know why you take it? Do you take the supper Remembering the baptism with which you were baptized, the gospel that you entrusted yourself to in Christ alone for salvation. Do you then look around and see brothers and sisters you're unified with in Christ? Or if you're visiting with us, do you remember back to the unity you share with the local church that you're visiting from? And does that make you desire to encourage them all the more to keep their faith? This is why we take and eat and drink. Now that we know who, we need to know how. So first, An immediate application. Keep your brother by committing yourself to a local church and gathering with these brothers and sisters so that you can keep them. 
Commit to them. Pour yourself out in obedience to Christ by loving them. Commit to their welfare. Fight to desire the best and actively pursue what is best for them. Commit to providing for their material needs that we saw in 1 John 3. Commit to loving them because you will give an account to the Lord for how you loved your brother because these are commands from him that we must keep. And I would argue if you're non-committal, you have failed to love them already. Think about this. If a betrothed couple were non-committal in their vows to one another, could either of them have any assurance that the other one would keep their promises? They wouldn't just up and leave when things get hard in their marriage? No. And that's not what the Lord would have for us as his church. John's gone through painstaking lengths to provide us with means for assurance of our salvation. And a means of assurance for the believer is a corporate commitment to the body, one another. Find somewhere you can commit. Even more fundamental than a commitment to a body, however, is this. Keep your brother by first keeping your faith. Everything we talked about up to this point, if, you're, if you aren't trusting in the one true Christ yourself, how could you keep your brother from believing any lie that is thrown his way from the Antichrist around him? How could you encourage them to keep one another, to remember the gospel that saved them? If you aren't walking in obedience to God, how could you keep your brother from sin or rebuke when necessary or correct or exhort them to walk in the light if you aren't? If you aren't resting in Christ yourself, how do you expect to be an example of what immovable faith in Christ looks like to brothers and sisters who are struggling? You can't. Now listen, the scriptures never prescribe personal perfection before you can walk alongside somebody and love them. But it does presume you are walking with the Lord yourself. Are you walking with him, keeping your faith? My wife Riley's uh, family lives in Florida, and some of you know that from experience, two things are true. One, Florida is a long drive from Nova, and two, young children in long drives don't usually mix. So when we visited her family in the past, we've opted to fly, which is also very difficult, but at least it's faster, right? I remember on one of those flights, being masked up, holding my son, minding my own business, trying to shh my son to sleep. And then all of a sudden, the flight attendant blares over the speaker. Attention, everybody, please listen closely. And she proceeded to give safety instructions for what to do in case of emergencies, which seems like bad timing if the door's already locked and the plane's going down the runway, but maybe that's just me. What else stuck out to me was her description of the oxygen mask. She says, in case of an emergency, be sure to safely secure your own oxygen mask before you help the person next to you. Why? Because if you can't breathe, you pass out. And if you pass out, who's going to help them? You cannot keep your brother, nor help him keep his faith, if you don't keep yours. And you know how difficult that can be sometimes. Which reveals one of the greatest ways we keep one another. We keep our brother by praying for and protecting him. In verse 14, John brings up our confidence, okay? This is important because that's four times now in this entire letter. Two times he references our confidence before judgment, chapters two and four, that we'll have confidence when Jesus comes back that we're gonna be saved. And two times referring to our confidence in prayer, chapters three and five. 
We can have confidence that God hears us when we pray and will give us what we ask if we're walking in obedience and praying according to his will. In both instances, our prayers are primarily for our brothers. See there in verse 14 and 15, he talks about confidence, tells us God hears us in whatever we ask. Then in verse 16, he says, if we see our brothers committing sins, we shall ask. The implication is that we ask for God on behalf of our brother to give our brother life. Are you in a position in this church where you are close enough to see your brothers and sisters, close enough to keep watch to see how they live, to hear what they say? Are you mindful of their lives for the sake of protecting them from their own sin, from your sin, from the sins of others, and all the temptations in between? We do not want our brothers and sisters sinning against the Lord in any way. We don't want to sin against God in any way. So the implication is that we are keeping such a close watch on them that we can protect them in any way that we can. So if they do sin, John says, our first response is we can pray for them. The sins not leading to death, this is important, are sins committed by a believer. Sins that he repents of and turns anew to the Lord in faith. Everyone who trusts in Christ has life. We already know that from verse 12. Sins that lead to death, however, are sins unrepented of. Sins a person continues to walk in, to embrace, to live in. They don't want to turn to Christ in faith. They reject Christ. And that's evident in their embrace of whatever besetting sin it is. And that ultimately leads to eternal death. Because they're not trusting in Jesus. Do you recognize the needs for those in your church? And pray for your brothers and sisters. Do you care enough to keep watchful care on their life? Are they being allured by strange doctrine? Are they walking in obedience to God's word? Are they loving their spouse, loving their children, loving their neighbor? How can you protect or pray effectively if you don't know what's going on in their life or if you don't even know them? Let this be an encouragement from the word to each of us to step out of our comfort zones and develop these kinds of relationships with one another. Relationships that we can know one another, pray for one another, care for one another. Maybe you're on the other side. Maybe you're the one that's sinning. Are there sins in your life that you cling to that you need to repent of? Verse 17 tells us that all wrongdoing is sin. All of us sin. He's already made that clear. But those who repent of their sin have life. Brother, sister, if you're stuck in some pattern of sin, fight for the humility to confess it. Confess your sin. Talk to a brother or sister about what's going on in your life. Remember, we've committed to one another, right? We've covenanted with one another, right? We should fight to protect one another as we imitate Christ, our ultimate protector. One commentator says this, dealing with sin in the church is a corporate responsibility. Corporate because each one of us should be doing it with one another so that it never escalates or never gets to a point that it has to be handled corporately because we're all doing it together regularly in each other's lives. Everyone should be involved in loving, keeping, pointing each other to the one true God, the only Savior, our advocate, our eternal life, which brings us to John's final exhortation in verse 
21. Keep yourselves from idols. Keep yourselves from idols, meaning hold back. Restrain yourself from going after them, no matter how enticing they might be, no matter how much they might offer you. Refrain from looking to them for life that only Jesus can give you. We must keep ourselves from all idols. And you do that by keeping your faith individually and keeping your brother corporately. There are infinite number of idols, each one alluring, enticing, and John wouldn't have said it if he had not known the human heart. Our tendencies to look for life in things, idols, even, as a, even us church, Christians, we have to guard one another to guard ourselves from idolatry. Verse 20, we guard ourselves, you know why? Because remember, remember you church, you know the one who is true. You are in the one who is true, in his son, Jesus Christ. He alone, that is he, the triune God, the one who was, who is, who is to come, the one who created the earth and everything in it, the one who separated the seas from the dry land, the one who breathes life because he is life, and that life is from his son, Jesus, because Jesus is life. He is the one true God. Look to him, the God who is light unapproachable in all his glory and majesty, all-consuming in glory, unfathomably bright, glorious and holy, like a blazing fire that no one has seen or ever can see. To him alone be honor and eternal dominion forever and ever. And then look at your pithy idols. Cold, smoldering wicks. Unable to comfort you. Unable to warm you. Alluring you with what appeared to be light, but reveal themselves as pathways to complete darkness. These are not your God, church. There are an infinite number of idols, but there is only one true God. So look to Him, and He will protect us. It is our faith in him that has overcome the world. Trust in him, church. Not yourself. Not anything around you. Jesus is life. Don't believe the lies, the messages that would lead you away from him. You cannot find life in any idol because they have no life to give. They can't. Only Jesus can. And the good news for us this morning is that when we turn from our idols, whatever they are, if we repent of our sins and confess them to the Lord and we trust in Jesus Christ as our Savior, by faith, he forgives us. So back to where we started. Blank is life. What did you say? What would you say? Now. Don't go to sleep tonight without answering that question for yourself. Because... The reality is, if you never open your eyes again, you will either find yourself on the other side of eternity embracing the eternal life himself, the Lord Jesus, or you will receive all that your idols could have ever delivered to you for their promises. Eternal death. The just penalty for our rejection of the one true God. Our faith is the victory. We've won and we will win. But only if our faith is in the conquering King of kings and the Lord of lords, Jesus Christ, he will put all of his enemies under his feet. And one day we will rule with him in the kingdom to come. He is our God. Let's pray.